0: So I work in retail. Um, I've had this job for about four years as just like a, we call it a checkout chick uh, in a grocery store.
1: A checkout um, chick? Is that what
2: you said? Y- yeah, that's the <laughs> okay. uh, colloquialism here.
1: <laughs> Oliver, is this, a, is this a Britishism?
2: I think this is one of the many uniquely cre- uh, Australian <laughs> ways of uh, <laughs> <like> <laughs> yeah. talking about the world. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Welcome to How To, I'm Amanda Ripley. It's safe to say most of us struggle to find time for everything we want and need to do, right? Whether you're a checkout clerk, a skater, a teacher, a parent, it's the same problem. This week's listener has big dreams and not enough hours in the day.
0: My name is Joey, I'm 25 years old. I'm an aspiring creative, Uh, I live in Australia. I aspire to be a writer, skater, musician, performer.
1: It's an impressive list. And as you can probably guess, Joey's having some difficulty making time for all of these interests.
0: There's so many things that I want to practice and, uh, you know, have like a weekly schedule of like, oh, today is this thing. I can do this. But I've always been someone who's struggled intensely with structure and expectations. And I'm finding that now that I'm having all these ambitions, I need structures and repetition. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, you and everyone else, which is why we're so glad that you reached out to us. <laughs> um, but what's funny is you say you're an aspiring creative, but it sounds like you're already a creative creative.
0: Yeah, I acted the other day for the first time, which was amazing. My first uh, theater production ever. Uh, it was A Midsummer Night's Dream. It was terrifying, but great.
1: Well, congratulations on your first big show. What did? You, what role did you play?
0: I played uh, Demetrius, the lover, and uh, Francis Flute, who plays Thisby as well.
1: Awesome. Okay, so actor, songwriter, skater. Am I missing anything?
0: I think that covers it.
1: And it sounds like you're realizing that to get really good at one of these things or many of these things requires structure and discipline. Is that right?
0: Yeah, totally. I'll get into these bursts of inspiration and then I'll really like sort of hyper focus on one of them and then tire myself out and be like, okay, I'm done with that. In a week or so time, I'm going to move on to the next thing. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, I'd like to see you progress in uh, a few of these things, maybe one specifically Mm -hmm. would be great but
1: what do you think is your worst fear
0: I think maybe like living without purpose is sort of uh, Mm -hmm. a theme that is ringing in my head right now
1: Mm -hmm. just kind of aimlessly drifting from one pursuit to the next is that what you mean yeah
0: yeah I think so and it's like sort of living in this way where I'm paying the rent with uh this retail job that isn't necessarily uh, fulfilling me in a way that I think that the creative work I do does. I have been reading this book, uh, Atomic Habits, that's hopefully been trying to help out with that stuff and like build habits and everything. But I feel like that's sort of gone to the to-do list as well.
1: So you're trying to read the Atomic Habits book, and now that's also on your to-do list. Is that what you mean? (laughs)
0: Yeah, pretty much. It's like yeah. I I've, I'm reading all these tips, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't read this until I'm ready to actually like engage with the advice it's giving me.
1: Uh huh.
0: And then it's like, okay, well, when that when's that time gonna be?
1: So Joey has found quite a few things that give him a sense of purpose, which is awesome, but he's haunted by the fear. That he'll use up all of his time and energy just paying the rent and never make progress on what matters most. This might be the central lament of our time. The other day, I came across a curated list of the top time management books of all time, including ones you've heard of, like The 4-Hour Workweek by Timothy Ferris, or Deep Work by Cal Newport, plus 98 other time management books. ninety-eight. It makes you wonder, is it possible we're asking the wrong question altogether? To break out of the usual time management traps, we're going to turn to a journalist and author who has developed a radically different and slightly sobering way of thinking about time.
2: I think it's kind of amazing and great to be having any of these thoughts at all at age 25.
1: (laughs) This is Oliver Berkman. He was once a lot like Joey full of ambition, reading every new time management book that came out, frustrated that he wasn't sticking with their tactics. Eventually, he had an epiphany that changed everything, as he chronicled in his book 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Now, like a lot of our listeners, he's got a young child at home and more demands on his time than ever before. But here's the thing, he's not nearly as stressed out about it. When we come back, Oliver will help Joey and all of us find some peace of mind when it comes to how we use our precious time, no matter what stage of life you're at. Don't go anywhere.
3: This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: Back in 2014, the writer Oliver Berkman was living in Brooklyn and just doing way too many things, including, ironically, writing a weekly column on productivity for The Guardian, One day he found himself sitting on a park bench, wondering how he could possibly get everything done.
2: I was, uh, it was a winter morning. I was in the middle of a week that was uh, even more crazily packed with deadlines and stuff I was supposed to do by the end of the week than usual. I was feeling anxious, as I usually did, about these things. And so I was trying to figure out, like, how could I cleverly organize my time and how could I summon reserves of self-discipline in order to like make it through this crazy amount of stuff that I felt I had to do that I that must be done by the end of the week pretty normal position I'm sure for many many people Mm. and just something about the extreme level of it for me or or the fact that I've been going through this for years at this point caused me to just sort of suddenly have this realization of like Oh, it's impossible. This thing that I thought was really, really hard was actually just impossible. It can't be done. I can't mm. do all these things that I think need to be done by the end of the week. And in that moment, I could like feel a, a burden being mm. being lifted. It wasn't it's not on any of us to do what is literally impossible. That just makes no sense. It's not even about showing yourself self-compassion and being nice to yourself. It's just, it's just um, logic, right? It's like, you can't do what you can't do.
1: For Oliver, this obsession with time management started when he was around the same age that Joey is now.
2: I, at 25, was sort of super anxious and really kind of an overachiever. You know, I was had all the grades at high school and at university and I was doing stuff that was impressive for being 25, but I was like not uh, happy about it. And my approach to time I see now was one of very much trying to kind of finally get into some position of feeling in control, trying to sort of come up with really strict plans that were going to enable me to meet all the demands that were placed on me and fulfill the ambitions that I had and, you know, make it all work. And then, you know, these plans that were implicitly the way I was going to organize my life from this day forth would last for like maybe a day, <laughs> 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 maybe, maybe maybe three days if I was lucky. And then I would just get really resentful of the person who was forcing me to organize my time this way, even though that person was me, right? So there's that sort of, that kind of sense that I need to organize my time in this very strict way, otherwise something terrible is going to happen, or I'm going to disappoint people, or someone's going to be mad at me. But on the other hand, a total refusal to follow these instructions, because like, there's what about freedom? And I'm trying to do creative things, and, and creativity isn't on tap. And that's where I definitely... That's where I see some overlap.
1: I mean, I wonder if if you think about it, sort of like diets, there are always these fads or trends in time management Um, and they come and they go. And like you said, they might last for a day. Uh, Can you tell us, Oliver, can you sort of tick through some of the ones that you have tried over the years before you sort of came to where, (laughs) where you are now?
2: Sure. Yeah. You know, there are all the kind of approaches derived from Stephen Covey. Where you figure out the different roles in your life, and you set annual, quarterly, monthly goals for those roles. There are things like the Pomodoro technique, still very popular today. You know, where you um, divide your work into twenty-five minute sections with five minute breaks. Mm-hmm, with the kitchen uh, timer, right? Right. Absolutely. Time boxing in general, where you. You literally sort of mark down on your calendar that between 9 and 11.30 on Thursday morning, you're going to do this task. Getting Things Done, which is a book that uh, David Allen wrote in about year 2000, uh, was a very big influence on me. And I certainly have not repudiated many of the lessons of that. I think he was onto a lot of very important things there, even if his exact system didn't quite work for me. So there's a list of them.
1: Okay. And you did Inbox Zero as well, right?
2: Inbox Zero, absolutely. The That's idea, the which has a, of uh, time. Right. Management. And a multitude of interpretations of that, right? And I just want to say, I mean, a lot of these techniques, not all of them, but a lot of them are completely fine. Like they're totally great ways of structuring your time. I think the real problem is that so many people, and me when I was younger, come at them as if they are going to lead to our salvation somehow right Mm -hmm. as if they are this thing that is going to cause us finally to get ourselves into this position of being on top of everything having our lives in working order and i think it's really important to go through that process of like becoming disillusioned with that idea
1: (laughs) joey do you think you have that delusion
2: oh absolutely (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm with you there (laughs)
1: <laughs> You're not in <laughs> denial about that.
0: No, no, it's. De- I'm very guilty of, of seeing the one thing, and I'm like, that's going to be the one that fixes me.
1: <laughs> mm. Mm. Would, ha- have you tried any of these fads, these trends?
0: Definitely the Pomodoro technique. I've sat down and done the the time boxing one, and here I am. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> so here's our first rule. Admit defeat. It may not be the inspirational speech you were hoping for, but there is a kind of freedom in just accepting the truth about beating the clock. It's not a battle you can win. Your opponent is undefeatable. So what then?
2: I think there is a really important kind of constructive and productive and meaningful kind of defeat, kind of surrender here that entails seeing that, you know, there will always be too much to do. But it's like, it, it's obviously easy to say this and harder to go through it, but it's this understanding that like, A, you can't fix yourself. And then B, you never actually need it to fix yourself, right? Because the fixing is very often some version of wanting to solve the problem of being a human with limited time and imperfect talents and flaws, right? It's this It's this idea that we've got to be able to like solve the human condition somehow. <laughs> and actually, there is nothing more liberating than seeing that that kind of situation is never going to be solved. And so you can kind of stop hmm. fighting that particular fight.
0: It's relieving to hear it, but it's also... I think there's a fear element attached to, because it's like when you've got those things in the back of your head that it's easier to to sort of embrace that truth when they're things that you don't really like. I, I almost feel like a little kid, like, you know, scrambling for all these toys and being like, no, I, I want to keep them all. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah.
1: So there's a certain kind of fear or sadness associated with accepting the idea that you're just simply not going to master acting, songwriting, and skating while working retail.
0: Yeah. Wow. I guess so. I
1: mean, how did that feel when you hear that?
0: There was like this sort of fear of like, oh, well, the emotional attachment to those things that I've had all this time was sort of like nagging at me when when you said that, Amanda. So that sort of fear came up for me again.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. I wonder, so accepting defeat, Oliver, I assume doesn't <laughs> mean doing nothing, right? Like just kind of doing whatever feels right in the moment. Um, and you've mentioned a bunch of things that, you know, are useful about some of those time management fads. But can you tell us a little bit about how your day to day looks differently now, Oliver, once you kind of put that epiphany into practice? I mean, did you just sort of ignore certain deadlines and do less and not worry about it? Or how did you put that into practice in real life?
2: Yeah, I mean, it definitely doesn't mean doing nothing or just being sort of drifting around on other people's agendas. I think it's really the opposite, right? It's when you're no longer scrambling to do an impossible amount, a literally impossible amount, you know, that's when you sort of become empowered to make wise decisions about what you want to do and what you're going to do. You're going to have to do one thing and then another, and you're going to have to let something be on the back burner. It's Mm. even more painful, obviously, when those things that you're going to have to put on the back burner are things that you consider to be a, a passion, you know, something very close to your desires for how you want to spend your life. I guess on my best days, I'm kind of capable now of tolerating the discomfort that comes with making things wait.
1: In other words, admitting defeat does not mean surrendering your priorities. It means being more honest with yourself about what they are, and then building up a tolerance for the pain that comes with neglecting other things. It sounds super zen, I realize, and very abstract, so we asked Oliver to explain how to actually put this into practice, like in real life.
2: One technique that I have sometimes used and that I think works a lot for other people as well is to sort of have a two to-do list system where you have one list that just you just put down everything that is on your plate that you want to do, that you think you need to do, that people are asking you to do. And then you have a second list which is limited to say 5 slots so it can only have 5 things on it at any one time and you take 5 things from that endless list and you put it on this short list and the rule is that you can't put anything else onto that short list until you've freed up a mm-hmm. slot by by doing one of them and and this is just a very sort of simple way of deliberately creating a bottleneck mm-hmm. in your workflow that sort of obliges you to see that you were already making almost everything wait while you did mm-hmm. something right that that was already the case that's just called being human but we're so prone to thinking that that we must be able to find some way to kind of pack 50 things into a into a day so it's just for me something that's been really helpful especially in my sort of creative work in writing things like that is is just setting these really achievable low level goals like for a day for a couple of hours of writing work.
1: And it reminds me of something in the beginning Joey you said how sometimes you'll get really into one particular passion and then neglect the others, but I almost wonder if Oliver you're saying that's exactly what you should do is you know sort of focus on one or two works in progress at a time rather than feeling like you have to move each ball, you know, 3 meters down. The, the field every day.
2: Absolutely. And I think, you know, totally depends on your individual situation, Joey. But like, for example, you could nominate the next six months as being time to focus on one of these pursuits. And if it was me, I would be literally putting a note in my calendar for six months from now, right? Because on some level, I have some weird a notion that I'm going to forget, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? That, that I'm going to forget these other things, even though they're life priorities for you. So you're not really going to forget them. Um, but just to have that trust that, you know, this isn't forever. Nobody's saying you have to give anything up forever or even for very long. I think sometimes with creative pursuits, especially people who resist planning may be very sort of free and easy, uh, relaxed, spontaneous types who bridle at, at structure. But sometimes there's a kind of an anxiety there that, like, if you don't follow the inspiration now, it might not come back or you might Mm -hmm. waste moments of of inspiration. And I think that uh, one of the things you you learn if you manage to do these kind of more slightly more structured and planned out approaches is that actually inspiration is completely happy with the structure. You know, inspiration does not not go away.
1: Of course, most of us can't choose a passion project over paying the bills. Inspiration is a luxury. But we all have to make trade-offs, regardless of our circumstances. So the real measure of a time management technique, Oliver says is if it helps you neglect the right thing. Yeah,
0: I, I think that maybe, maybe Oliver's right and that I'd, I'm not really sure which one to pick because mm-hmm. they're all sort of
1: different. Oliver, what, what's your advice when you can't decide?
2: You know, you can end up spending weeks and months mired in in indecision because option A, path A seems like a really important thing to do with your time and path B seems like a really important thing to do with your time as well. But if you think rationally about it, if you can switch into a slightly more calculating mindset, the very fact that these two things seem so meaningful Ought to reduce the anguish. And when you find yourself in these situations, it's extraordinary how often just like, it doesn't really matter as long as you do one of them.
1: I I think like the most powerful lesson of your book was this piece about the psychological torment that we put ourselves through, to use your words. There's a feeling bad because you didn't get to all the things you want to do. And then mm-hmm. there's feeling bad because you feel like you're lazy or screw up. You're, you know. So there's like this shame sandwich that we start to build, right? So there's, uh, and sort of what you're talking about, I think, is is deconstructing, making it more of an open-faced shame sandwich. So love that...
2: it, love it. <laughs> this this <laughs> metaphor is on fire.
1: <laughs> so we can still feel bad that we didn't do all the things. But less, less kind of existentially bad, right? It's sort of like, I mean, to me, the quintessential example of this is my email inbox. So I have never approached inbox zero. That's just something I laugh at. That's never going to happen. But recently, and, and, and I've been encouraged by your book to do this, Oliver, I've just given up trying. Like, I mean, I do things. <laughs> I star emails that are really important. And right. then eventually I set aside some time and go through those. And almost all of them I have to do like a mea culpa in the first like two sentences where I'm like, <laughs> right, oh, I'm such right. a terrible person. I'm really sorry. It's taking me this long. <laughs> but like now I get I just say this is the way it's gonna be. Like I am I'd rather neglect my email than my writing or seeing my family or my friends. There is no other choice. I could do email professionally. That's it, all day long. And many people could, right. right? And that would just right. be a miserable existence so it's sort of for me to use one last tortured metaphor like my 16 year old son's bedroom like it is just a disaster in there and at some (laughs) point i just decided to close the door and be like you know what this is not a battle i'm gonna fight and that's how my inbox looks right now it looks like an adolescent boy's bedroom
2: yes no absolutely picking your battles is is fundamentally all of this is
1: we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to put down that shame sandwich and see if we can find a far more satisfying snack. Don't go anywhere.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
1: Do you love how-to, but hate the ads? I have the solution for you. Join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Signing up for Slate Plus helps us help all the people you hear on our podcast every week. And no ads on this or any other Slate podcast. You also get free and total access to Slate's website. And you're supporting our important work. So I hope you'll join if you can. To sign up now, go to slate.com slash how to plus. Again, that's slate.com slash how to plus, P-L-U-S. Thanks. We're back with our listener, Joey, and Oliver Berkman, author of 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals. Before the break, we were talking about that nagging guilt we feel when we never get to the end of our to-do list.
0: Yeah, I think that rings true for me too. Like this sort of... Unscratched itch sort of thing, and Mm. I guess the irony of that is like when I do actually talk about it, it's it helps me realize that well I'm not happy, and I maybe that my life is in need of a change in in some way or a shift.
1: Tell me about the unscratched itch feeling. I think it's like
0: there's this sort of guilt. I know that I could be happier if you know my time was spent in a different way and. Hmm. there's this feeling of neglect of almost like my authenticity.
1: Yeah. There's something poignant about what you just described is a sense that there's some other road that you could, you could be traveling on um, that would be more aligned with what you're meant to be doing. Is that right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think so.
1: How did it feel performing in the show
0: yeah it was really really good i think even when we were rehearsing there was this feeling of purpose it's like when you're doing it and you're in that rehearsal space it's it's sort of like the purpose doesn't come from the fact that oh this this end goal will be met and then i'll be happy it's like Mm. i don't know it's just like you're part of something so much bigger but to be part of that is it's such an honor I think
1: Hmm. Hmm. it's so interesting how I feel like you're hitting on Oliver the way in which you write about time management is sort of a proxy battle for other deeper yearnings that we have as humans living in the modern world where we're often doing things that don't seem to have a sense of connection community and purpose and searching for that feeling
2: yeah, I, I think so. I think it's both that we are kind of systematically lured by various aspects of modern culture into not doing the things that matter most. Mm. And then it's that poignancy coming up in what both of you have been saying. Even when we are doing the things that matter the most, there's a kind of a sadness built in to mm. doing what matters, right? Which is that you don't get to do all the things that matter. So I think, in a way, to be a real downer on everything, we have a choice between a kind of denial and avoidance, mm. uh, and distracting ourselves to death, as it were, or mm. living in this kind of very rich and meaningful way of, of of being in time that has a kind of disappointment in it. But I think that's when you get to this sense that. I and other people have called the the joy of missing out. You know, this idea that there's actually something, if you're conscious of what you're giving up in Mm. order to do something, it actually seems to give it a greater Mm. sense of meaning.
1: So forget FOMO. I love this phrase, the joy of missing out. Let's call it JOMO. You heard it here. Start saying no to things you want to do. Because we only have so much time, and if you're using it well, it means you're missing out on certain things. Just make sure they're the right things.
2: You just got to find the diplomatic way of saying no to all the things you don't want to do. But that's unlikely to be the case for most of us. It's going to be that we have to say no to things that we do want to do, and that would have been completely legitimate uses for our time right it's not right. that it's not that um, you're going to figure out that only some things matter and then do all of those yes. it's that you're going to figure out that only some things matter realize you, you can't even do all of those <laughs> and 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 then and then do a handful
1: i mean tell me if this is ridiculous but i feel like we almost there's an analogy here with uh, dating like you can spend your whole life looking for your soulmate the perfect person who's going to complete you and solve all your problems and after that you will be living, right? And it's almost like we fall into the same trap, right? With efficiency.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think those are not the only two examples. I think there is this kind of basic idea that the moment of truth is going to be later.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, these are big existential questions that get much more urgent the older you get. I wonder, you know, speaking of how much time we all have, Oliver, could you explain the title of your book?
2: Oh, yeah. 4,000 weeks, very, very, very roughly, is the average lifespan in the developed, industrialized world. We don't actually know how much time any one person is going to get. But it almost doesn't make sense to talk about the idea of us having time at all. It's a very strange way of thinking when you stop to really ponder it, this idea that you're given a certain amount of time on the planet. You're not. We're each given just like this moment and the next moment and the next moment. And so one of the ways that I think this is really kind of liberating and relaxing and empowering is that it sort of means that by definition, you only ever have to figure out what to do like with the next moment. Uh, You, you, Even if you're the kind of person who's given to long-range plans, that's still going to be something that you do with your next moment. And I've always found something very, um, very wonderful about that fact, right? The fact that uh, actually it's not on me to try to figure out how to spend my life meaningfully or make a difference to the lives of other people. It's on me to figure out how to spend the next moment and make a difference in the next moment to the lives of other people. And that really, that really cuts it, brings it down to size and makes it something that one can contemplate doing, I think.
1: Yeah, you have this lovely section of the book where you talk about our cosmic insignificance, um, which I think <laughs> is very reassuring, you know. Joey, I'm guessing that some of this was maybe more abstract. And I wonder, hearing all of this, what do you think will stick with you?
0: I think that this conversation is sort of like it's really a lot deeper than i think i realized and we're all sort of talking about this thing of meaning and i think that that it's actually sort of reversing that four thousand weeks mindset of like instead of thinking oh i only have this much time left or doing things that you think you should be doing it's like life means a lot and and just to focus on what actually you want to do next i think is really powerful and like what makes you feel alive
1: which of your activities make you feel most alive right now
0: you know i think the acting thing was really powerful
1: yeah yeah you could in your voice you seemed full of life when you talked about that
0: yeah yeah
1: Hmm. that's awesome i wonder do you have any last questions to ask oliver
0: Aside from all this lovely talk about meaning and significance <laughs> uh, if you could like give any uh like one sort of specific uh you know to do list or technique for someone who hates them what what do you think that would be?
2: I feel like one one answer here might be to try to to take one of these one of these pursuits and aim to do a really minuscule amount on a daily basis to set a sort of Mm. a, a, a goal that can be achieved in like 20 minutes. And this is a crucial thing that I've found very useful, not only to tell yourself that it's only going to be 20 minutes because that makes it something that you can fit into a little sliver of time, but also to make yourself stop when the 20 minutes is, is up, even if you're on a roll. To actually practice making one of these things uh, 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 and the sort of disciplined pursuit of one of these things a really tiny part of every day of your life. It's just so extraordinary after mm-hmm. like a, a week <laughs> that it becomes really kind of addictive in a, in a positive way. But certainly like it enables you and as someone who's also working in a, in a sort of separate job to see that like Half an hour is is usable time for these sorts of things and and it can just be extraordinary what you can produce
1: right you don't resent it as much right if you if it's a if it's a minuscule amount of time
2: you don't resent the structure it doesn't feel like a sacrifice from something else right. and right. yet you know if you wrote 200 words every single day of the year you would have uh, that's that's a book
1: Here's our last piece of super practical advice. If you've got limited time and a big goal, break it up into little slivers of time, as Oliver puts it. Do a little bit each day, day after day after day. I do this myself with a daily meditation. I meditate 10 minutes every morning and I used to feel bad about this. Like that's not real, you know, real meditators meditate for hours. What is your problem? This is the shame sandwich. And then, you know what? I've now meditated 7,000 minutes over the past, like, four rich, years. Rich. So suck it. Um, like, I feel like that's, an, then, you know, to your point, like, a little each day. A
2: solid, a solid Buddhist uh, sentiment there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I have more work to do. It's true. But you get the idea. Um, Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Joey and Oliver, thank you both so much for talking about this in a, in a totally like, mind-blowing way that um, is very different from what uh, usually gets talked about when people talk about time management. Thank you to Joey for spending some of his precious time with us very early in the morning in Australia time, I should add, and to Oliver Berkman for all of his wisdom and for talking to us very late at night in England. Make sure to check out his book, 4,000 Weeks. What about the rest of you? Do you have an existential dilemma that's causing some real life problems? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail, 646-495-4001. We'd love to have you on the show. And if you like what you heard today, give us a rating and a review and tell a friend. Surely you have a friend who's constantly trying new time management fads. We all know someone like this. Maybe you are someone like this. Spread the word. That helps us help more people. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson and Kevin Bendis produced this episode. Merritt Jacob is our senior technical director. Charles Duhigg created the show. Carvel Wallace is my co-host. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening.